0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.tv, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It would be great pleasure to introduce, introduce our uh, honor guest speaker, Dr. Robert Curlin, uh, who's the chief of our Division of Interventional Radiology at UCSF. I think I can speak uh, for... Uh, all of us at UCSF that Bob is really one of the most beloved and respected physicians at UCSF and uh, always go above and beyond. The coordinators would support me with that and uh, going above and beyond call of duty to really help us in delivering exceptional care to our patients, uh, very complex issues before and after the transplantation and uh, really appreciate all the efforts from you and your team and uh, on a personal note, it's been great working with Bob, running the Tumor Board and being very supportive and collaborating in many uh, projects in HCC over the years. So uh, it's a great pleasure and honor for us to have you come and talk to us about uh, the role of intervention radiology in managing portal hypertension. Okay. Thanks, Bob.
1: Thanks, Well, um, it's actually my honor to be here, and it's been my honor to participate in work with the liver transplant group over the years. And without, you know, getting tears welled up in my eyes, I will say that this has really been the honor of my life, and working with the colleagues in liver transplants really been an unbelievable experience. Now, don't worry about the time, because... When I gave this talk to my wife, I always have to give the talk to the wife, time it in the morning. It was only 22 minutes, so I think we're going to be just right. As another, I have nothing to disclose with regard to receiving money from drug companies or anything like that. But this voice here, I'm sorry about it. It's it's not my attempt to be Barry White. But, you know, the other day they, they took me and did some endoscopic work on my vocal cords and scraped off some i think probably some cigarettes from college back in there it was okay but it won't get better for a while but here's to a little water and I'll put this right here. now the forward i got it here i'm sure yeah here i'm i'm good great The program has me listed as professor of medicine. I'm certainly not. I'm an interventional radiologist, and it is my pleasure to work at the University of California, San Francisco, for the vast majority of my career. I am one of those guys who were really lucky, and I fell into a situation to be the partner of Dr. Ernie Ring, who uh, retired not too long ago, and he was one of the real pioneers in getting interventional, radiologists involved with the management of portal hypertension. He actually did the second tips in the United States by a matter of six hours compared to Barry Katzen down at the Miami Vascular Institute. And, you know, they pushed the limit of this procedure in the 90s and for many, many years I, I had the great opportunity of participating in more TIPs procedures than, you know, the vast majority of individuals. So we were able to get some experience. The things that uh, I'm sure that you're all familiar with that are related to portal hypertension as coming to uh, perhaps treatment by the interventional radiologists include variceal bleeding ascites, renal. we'll talk a little bit about that, encephalopathy and, and portal vein thrombosis. And I can't do that for a while, but I'll I'll hit this button. We're going to be okay. Um, What can I already do? I know that most of you guys think of this. It turns out radiology, particularly interventional radiology, is not rocket science. There's only a certain number of things you can do through a catheter. You can block something up. You can reopen something. And occasionally, you can make a connection between two vessels. But that's it. It's sort of like dermatology gone wrong. You know, it's like wet, dry, no, nah, no. Nah. And, 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 and that's what we do. But it turns out that it's fairly useful because there's a, a, a number of things that can be done. Creating the shunts to lower the portal pressure can treat a number of conditions. Blocking off veins can treat a number of conditions. And reopening veins is also useful uh, in many circumstances. So let's start with the the age-old creating shunts, because I did open it up with the small anecdote about uh, Dr. Ring and portal pressure. And this is an unbelievable procedure, the TIPS, the transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt. I used to uh, examine for the American Board of Radiology, and it's funny that the candidates would come, I would show them a picture like this, and I would say... Well, what's, what procedure has this patient had? And they'd all, you know, immediately they were all fired up. They'd say, Oh, he's had a TIPS. And then I go, What does TIPS stand for? Which, you know, it doesn't seem to me too much to know what these acronyms stand for, but I'd say about 10% of them got it right. And there are other things that have come along since the advent of TIPS in the early 90s, and there's the DIPS. Dips, okay. I never asked them what dips stand for because I knew they wouldn't do it. But that's the direct intrahepatic port cable shunt. And then there's this really weirdo thing that you can do every now and then, which is a percutaneous meso cable shunt. Fairly fancy. you got to puncture the SMV from the cave or from the outside. doesn't happen very often. Not many indications for it. But you should know that there is a possibility to create a portosystemic shunt, even in patients who don't have a portal vein, and it's one of the options that we're occasionally required to use. Indications for tips, pretty much worked out. I wouldn't say this is a totally mature field, but on the whole, um, there's clearly indications which are accepted and have been evaluated with level one data, and that includes secondary prevention of variceal bleeding, refractory ascites, and Refractory acute variceal being totally acceptable. When these things come along, somebody asks you to do it, you don't have to think twice, you know, that's definitely it. Now, it gets a little sketchier when you're talking about renal syndrome. Does it work? Yeah, probably. But the data certainly isn't as strong. And these other things are not as well established, but I think completely legitimate. Bud Chiari, completely legitimate to use tips in that circumstance. Hepatopulmonary, mm, sketchy, very sketchy. Uh, you know, I've tried it a few times. There's not a lot of papers that say, oh, this is a great thing to do, but some people suge- suggest this is a use for the shunt. Hepatic venooclusive disease is essentially just bud chiari, so we didn't talk about it. though, is just refractory ascites that's not diuretic responsive, that's going through holes in the diaphragm. So I just, you know, throw that in as an absolute, excellent indication to create a shunt. I've got this worked out now. We're doing good. Um, there have been several meta-analyses with regard to the utilization of tips versus endoscopic therapy for the prevention of rebleeding, and I'm just going to peel off on a little anecdote here. Um, I happen—I have, have four kids. One of them lives with me, and he has his son and the girlfriend. They live down the hall. That's great. Um, How many of you, when you were raising your kids, thought, I'm going to do a better job than my parents? (laughs) Yeah, uh uh-huh, yeah, well, yeah, sure. But you didn't have to, like, look at it because they're living down the hall. And every mistake that he thought you made when you were raising them gets, like, stuffed right in your face. Anyway, the reason I'm bringing this along is that my son has given his son the three basic rules of life. Rule number one, completely agree with it, is stay alive as long as you possibly can. Rule number two is don't kill anything unless it's trying to kill you. Got it? Keeps you out of jail? Good, good rule. But rule number three is the reason that I'm telling this anecdote, which is everything has a price. And everything does have a price. And clearly, even though the studies have shown us that TIPS does an excellent job in prevention of rebleeding. It does come at a cost. And the cost in this circumstance is going to be, I got this worked out, go, is uh, encephalopathy. I'm not going to go back and do this because I haven't a little trouble here, but I'm going to be okay, that you have a much higher encephalopathy rate compared to endoscopic therapy. And in the end, the mortality is the same. So the question then comes, even though you can do this, if the mortality is the same, who do you pick to do it? Well, there's a lot of ways to prevent re Who do you pick? My fellows, you know, we treat them really well. They know how to do almost everything. But when they go off to practice, the phone calls I get are never, you know, which catheter I should use or what size I should dilate or what stent. It's always, gee, do, do you think I should do this? It's picking the patients. It's not doing the procedure. And that's, you know, something that requires experience and developing some background on where these procedures are useful. And even though I know that tips is an excellent way to prevent rebleeding, there's always a lot of other ways you can do it. If somebody's bleeding, you know, and they keep bleeding, that's fine. But in the other circumstance, you know, who is it better to just put them on medical therapy if they're doing okay? And it turns out there was this interesting paper uh, that came out of the Lancet. It was a long time ago. And what they showed is that when people were put on beta blockade, and in some cases, vasodilation therapy, that there were two groups. One group, they did not respond. And their wedge pressure, their portosystemic gradient didn't drop. And those people were at high risk of rebleeding. On the other hand, if they did drop on the basis of either a wedge pressure or pressures taken at the time of endoscopy within the varices, those people did very, very well and they did not recurse. So if you can figure out who the high group, high risk group is for rebleeding, then you're way ahead of the game and able to apply these therapies uh, with uh, much uh, more efficiency. Okay, we're gonna go right down here. So, who are these high-risk patients? Who is at real high risk for re-bleeding after they come in with an indexed variceal bleed? Well, <clears throat> I think that there's two ways to identify people who are at high risk. One, and uh, Dr. Monticello and this group did hepatic venous wedge pressures on everybody within 24 hours of admission after they had a variceal bleed. And they thought, well, if the gradient stays above 20, these guys are probably at high risk and those patients were randomized either to having a TIPS or going on with medical therapy. And the other way to identify high-risk patients is if you have patients who are child C, not the, you know, 14s or 15s, but 10, 11, 12s and, or even the, the child's B, they probably have a higher risk of re-bleeding. So... In that circumstance, uh, they looked at in the first study, they found that if the wedge pressure dropped to a low level, they were a low risk group, and those patients hardly ever had problems with rebleeding. However, in the higher risk groups, if you compare the patients who were managed medically with the patients who underwent tips, they did much better with the early TIPS creation. So that's something to think about, that if the patient either has persistent bleeding or there is evidence of persistent high pressure, they may be a good candidate to, to go ahead and have the TIPS procedure. Now, with regard to the child's C patients who've bled, the same things were found. Early TIPS, if you can pick these patients, the patients did much better, not only from a perspective of not having rebleeding, but also in survival. Now, there's a double-edged sword in these patients with, who are child C. They have bad liver disease, and we all know that sometimes the TIPS doesn't do great for the liver. But in this population with the Cs, who were down there in the, the 10, 11, 12s, they did better, and they lived longer. How about ascites? Everybody knows about the ascites, and it's sort of the same thing. That TIPS turns out to be real, real good in controlling the ascites, and is much better than large-volume paracenteses over a period of time. But it comes at a cost, and the cost in this case is encephalopathy. And again, when it drops down and you look at survival, it's the same. So most people recommend to offer tips to patients who are getting three or more paracentesis in the period of a month after you counsel them that actually encephalopathy is an issue. And some people, you know, they don't care anyway, it's fine, they'd be a little encephalopathic. But, you know, to other individuals, that's an extremely important uh, side effect of the procedure, and they can make a decision in conjunction with you of whether or not they want to pursue this type of therapy. A Epadrenaline wow, you know, this is a, certainly a bad thing. It's kind of when ascites goes way wrong. And despite the fact that these curves show that there's a significant difference in the patients who received TIPS versus the patients who were medically managed, I want, want you to know this was a retrospective study. And I don't think these groups were controlled, and there was bias introduced here for better survival in the patients that underwent TIPS. That being said, these were... Uh, a patorenal syndrome type 1. These are people who are really sick, and they got a median survival of 8.5 months when they underwent TIPS compared to the 1.5 months when they didn't. So if you have somebody who's got a patorenal syndrome who, you know, isn't, doesn't have terrible liver function, if they're like a 9 or a 10, it's certainly something that might be considered because most studies will show that TIPS, over a period of time, does improve renal function. We'll go away from shunts now, and we're going to go on blocking off veins. Blocking off veins is something that, you know, one one of the original interventional radiology procedures of doing embolization. And certainly, as of late, everyone is aware that the Berto procedure has become quite popular. The Bürto procedure was actually developed in Japan. And part of the reason that they liked to do the Bürto there was that, you know, they don't have transplantation with deceased donors at the rate we did, and yet they have a lot of hepatitis C as opposed to hepatitis B across the sea. Um, and many of their patients were having variceal bleeding. So this procedure came along and thought, hey, this is great. We don't have to do the TIPS, and they don't have to go into liver failure, and we can still stop their bleeding. If you think the candidates have a hard trouble with what TIPS stands for, you should say, well, what does Berto stand for? And, you know, it's not sitting there. It's balloon-occluded retrograde transvenous obliteration. And the great thing about this procedure is you can do it in people with terrible MELD scores. You can do it in people who have encephalopathy. And you can do it in people who have anatomic preclusions to doing a TIPS procedure or have continued bleeding after successful TIPS. I think I'm getting this down with advancing the slides, that's good. The, the indications to do the burto is if you have active bleeding from gastric varices in the presence, in the anatomic presence of a gastrorenal renal shunt and it's not bleeding from esophageal varices because this procedure is no good when you're bleeding from the esophageal varices. It's also been used in patients who have a history of bleeding from gastric varices or somebody does an endoscopy and it looks like there's going to be impending bleeding. You know, you can do this procedure prophylactically in patients where TIPS is generally never recommended in that circumstance because of the risk of bleeding the risk of liver failure and the risk of encephalopathy. The procedure itself is hard. And, you know, I... I've made my living trying to do hard things, but I don't like to do them because they're hard and stressful. But this procedure in itself requires you to take a catheter, put it down from the jugular vein, find this communication, which is usually an adrenal vein or a diaphragm vein that feeds into the top of the left renal vein. You put a balloon up, and then you inject sodium sutradecal. And as originally described... Then you tape the catheter in place, send the patient up to the ICU where, you know, they wait for 6, 8, 10, 12 hours depending on what time of day you blow up the balloon to tell you honestly because you don't want to come in at 2 a.m. and do this. And then when they come down, you take the balloon down and you you have to do this fluoroscopically because what you don't want is all this toxic detergent to rush up and go to the lungs, which can be like a little bit on the fatal side. So you know, that's that's what makes this sort of a stressful procedure. To get around that, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go here. Touchdown. People have developed the PARTO. Ah, another epinep. This one stands for plug-assisted retrograde transvenous obliteration. And in this circumstance a plug, a metallic plug that's used to obstruct a blood vessel is placed with a second catheter up around it. And once the plug is displaced, you can inject the STS and then you can pull out because it's not going to go anywhere with the plug in. And in that way you can get around the problem of sending the patient to the ICU. Or the CARTO. The Car- this is how people get along in academics. You know, somebody's got an idea, they put a little variation on it, and they can get that published because it's different because CARTO stands for... Coil-assisted retrograde thrombotic occlusion of varices. And it's the same thing as a parto, with the exception that you're using a coil rather than a plug. But, you know, you can always say, this has never been reported before, and you get away with it. This is actually something that is useful, the BATO. The BATO is the balloon-assisted anagrade thrombotic occlusion of the varices. I like this because one of the problems that you get in with the retrograde approach is if you're injecting and you actually don't fill this network of varices that's hanging out at the gastro junction, you can make things worse. If you block this vein, you're going to increase the pressure and then... You know, if the patient's been bleeding, this might break and create massive hemorrhage. But if you're going from an antegrade approach, it's going to take your material and block it, out, and you can combine it with the Berto, and in that way, be more secure that you're obliterating the varices which are bleeding in the gastric fundus. So tips versus Berto. For my money... If you are a candidate for the BRTO and no matter what else is going on, and you're not bleeding from esophageal varices, your esophageal varices have been included, I would go with a berto bato carto thing before I did a tips. Because what's what's the cost? What's the price? What's the price of the Berto procedure? The price is ascites, because you're going to raise portal pressure, and some people will get new ascites or worse than ascites. But it's not liver failure. It's not encephalopathy. In fact, if the people are encephalopathic, encephalop- these procedures make them better. And it's, if you don't have liver failure, you don't have, have encephalopathy, it's a pretty good deal, because you can always go back in and throw a tips on top of it. Now, you might be bleeding some other places. Everyone's had patients who have ileostomies and portal hypertension, and all of a sudden they start bleeding around the ileostomy. And, you know, it's kind of tough. That's pretty easy for us, to be honest with you. We can go either transhepatic or sometimes even from a systemic vein crawling up the abdominal wall and get into these networks of varices surrounding the ostomy, inject a combination of glue and coils, pretty much takes care of problem in a lot of circumstances, does not require the placement of a TIPS, particularly important in patients who have marginal hepatic reserve. Or this one. Love this. Um, you know, if you have bad portal hypertension, like a it, how do you clean your belly button? You know, because everybody's got to clean their belly button. Very carefully is probably the good answer. But if you go digging around there and you start bleeding, yeah, this is an issue. This is an issue. Because You know, you bleed all all over the place. It's not tough for us to go into the liver, into the portal vein, and select out these umbilical veins. And again, drop some coils, drop some glue, takes care of that problem, doesn't do anything for the underlying portal. Hypertension probably makes it a little bit worse. But the majority of these patients have collaterals elsewhere, and you tend not to create problems when you're doing a regional occlusion like that okay, we've got to go back because I went too far. Encephalopathy. I think that we all have patients who have encephalopathy and a big portosystemic shunt. Again, using the principle of knocking this shunt down, it will elevate your portal pressure, but it's going to force more blood through the liver and improve your encephalopathy. Uh, Dr. Saad looked at five studies of 35 patients where they did it's a 100% resolution. Yeah. yeah, I'm always a little suspicious when somebody says 100% resolution. But certainly that theory is solid. If you have somebody who has troubling encephalopathy and an obvious portosystemic shunt, it's certainly a procedure to consider. And you know, it may come back. You got the portal hypertension, it's going to recruit new veins. But at least in the short-term period, in the subacute period of weeks to months, you're going to be able to make that patient better by blocking up those veins. Finally, we can reopen veins. I wish I had the answer to this. I, I think we all get like at least one phone call every three, four months about somebody who's out there, usually with a hypercoagulable syndrome, who comes in and they got portal mesenteric thrombosis. And sometimes you can even throw in some hepatic vein thrombosis on the top. Bad problem. I don't know the right thing to do. I'm with the ASLD that if the patient can eat without pain, if they don't have dead bowel, anticoagulation is probably the way to go. It really is, because they will develop collaterals over time, and it's a simpler thing. But if they're not, if they can't eat, if they have persistent pain, if they're not going to be okay, and you got to do something, then nobody really knows what the right thing to do is. A lot of things have been tried. I like the theory of putting a catheter in the superior mesenteric artery and dripping TPA, because you think, ah, it's going to get all in there. Turns out not to work very well. I've tried this three or four times. Doesn't seem to reestablish excellent flow. For my money, if you got to do something with this terrible disease, the best thing to do is to do a tips into the occluded portal vein that provide outflow and then drop a catheter or mechanical thrombectomy device there, infuse the TPA, suck out as much clot as you can. And when you do that, the clot will come up and go through the, the tips and off into the systemic circulation. I did this lady, oh, a decade ago, and this thing is still patent. And you know everybody thought she was going to need a liver transplant. she was hypercoagulable. she had the the bacteria thing and i don 't have like fifty of these cases, and that 's why nobody knows exactly what to do. but I do know that this works sure if you 're giving thrombolytics to somebody that got holes in the liver might be a problem, might bleed, could be bad. You have to think about what you 're doing. but you know if there 's not another alternative and they 're not going to get better then Sometimes you do have to take the, the chance of having a complication related to bleeding in attempt to reopen the mesenteric circulation. Now, there's a couple other things that we'll just go through real quick because we're coming down. Because I have a couple of, uh, I've got four quick cases here of patients who we have reopened a chronic portal venous occlusion. Now, sometimes people with, a, you know, a cavernous transformation in the portal. They don't need anything. But there are patients who have problems, like this patient who's got cholangiocarcinoma and is bleeding from gastric varices and has their portal vein occluded by thrombus. Bad problem. Tumor. Tumor thrombus. Um, This patient's not going to live for a real long time. But you want to minimize the amount of time this patient is spending in the hospital. So in this circumstance, again, puncturing the portal vein in the liver is no big deal. And going through uh, these structures to get a catheter through is something that we, you know, have some familiarity with. And you get there and you drop a stent. And what this does is probably not going to make the patient live a ton longer, but they're not going to spend all that time in the hospital so it 's really important that circumstance here 's another patient here 's a, a a woman who 's got chronic pancreatitis and a large ventral hernia, and you know, surgeons don 't like to go in there and operate and do these procedures in people with terrible portal hypertension so they you know say, "Well, can you do something and yeah everything 's got a price it 's got a cost, but it certainly is possible to go in and open up these veins to decompress the splenic venous system. In this case, it was a little more complex because both the uh, proximal aspect, the superior mesenteric vein, and the medial aspect, the splenic vein, were occluded. So it required placement of two stents. She did fine. They did the operation. They repaired her uh, varices, and she didn't live forever, but uh, certainly she got through that problem. Here's a, a young lady who had an orthotopic liver transplantation about nine years ago, and she had a surveillance endoscopy that showed gastric varices. And that was kind of weird, you know? It's like, so we looked at her, and she did have occlusion of the portal vein. And if you look at the uh, uh, splenic venogram here, it's a mess. You don't see any collaterals that are going through. Now, over the past, I would say, five years, people have been doing these procedures via a splenic puncture, this puncture of vein in the spleen. You think, oh, my God, they're going to die. They usually don't. You know, it's like you can see the vein. You can get a catheter in it like we do into the liver. We can occlude the tract when we're coming out. And it offers you a different approach if it's not possible to get a catheter through the occlusion from the portal venous approach. So it is something that's been accepted that people are doing, and certainly we've engaged it in this circumstance. You can see our catheter coming in from the spleen, crossing the obstruction, and then, you know, we place a stent, looks good. And here's another patient where the it didn't appear to have any, there didn't appear to be any portal veins inside the liver. Well, again, coming from the spleen, we're able to wiggle up across the obstruction, somewhere up, you know, into the where we think the liver is. And now that we have these little CT scanners in the angio suites, you know, once we get uh, a wire and a catheter up there, we can say, well, we're in the liver because we can do the quick little CT scan showing where things are. And then if you put a snare in, you can use the snare as a target, and you can stick the needle, and after you do that, you can create the tips, which, of course, allows decompression of the portal venous system. It's, it's amazing. I, you know, I was old enough, we used to do splenoportography all the time. That's the way we looked at things. But we had some bleeds there, so I was sort of surprised that this turned out to be as safe as it does. So in conclusion, you know, really, for the most part, even though I keep beating on John Roberts to, to do a rex-gen or something, he always likes us to, to try to do the minimally invasive treatment first. And for the most part, we're reasonably successful. Surgery, open surgery, bypass can be used following that if that is unsuccessful. But we've been really pretty good in preventing rebleeding from varices. We've been very good in controlling that refractory ascites patients. I can't say that we have a large enough experience with the renal syndrome to make any recommendations, but we certainly have been very good at uh, blocking off veins, improving encephalopathy, using the Berto in people who have very poor liver function. And, you know, in, in some circumstances, this has been life-saving. I appreciate your attention very, very much. Thank you.
0: stay yeah no it's okay uh questions so let me ask the first question about uh, so uh, what's your stand on getting the uh, the gradient down to 12 or lower
1: yeah. yeah um i think in in bleeding patients uh it's really pretty important. People have the 12 number as a threshold above which bleeding is likely to recur and below which it does not. It turns out that that used to be a bigger problem when we just had the bare metal stents, but with the covered stents that are now available with the stronger backing, the vast majority of people will drop down to under 12. And our tact usually is to use a 10 millimeter stent, but only dilate it to eight millimeters. And if the gradient is not down to a level that you want, then you put it in a bigger balloon and you over it. It turns out that in, with the current technology, in the majority of cases, um, it's only about 5 or 10% where you don't drop the gradient. That being said, if I get in and I'm doing a case and all of the flow is a patofugal, I'll put in a 12-millimeter stent and dilate it to, I'll say 8, but I usually dilate it to 10 to start. Because it's very few patients who will not achieve that gradient with a 12-millimeter stent. If it doesn't work, then you're going to be stuck, because the only other alternative is doing a parallel tips, which is really, it's hard. It's it's, it's a nuisance. Things are in the way, so we'd rather avoid that if we could.
0: So uh, we have... You know, some patients with refractory ascites, and uh, we did the tips. Looks like everything is open on ultrasound, and yet is not working. I mean, the the ascites is not getting better. I think that we're probably seeing ten, twenty percent. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the, there's this? Uh, what, what what's your? Uh, can you comment on that and yeah. say anything you can do?
1: You know. If it's initial, if it's initially and you've made the tips and you got people like the pressure actually down about eight if you're going to be treating ascites. And if it was at that level and it doesn't get better, then you got to worry that uh, maybe there's another cause for ascites. But it is true. Ten to 20% of people do not respond to tips. On the other hand, if you have somebody and you did a tips and their ascites went away and it comes back, I don't care what the ultrasound says. Those people need a a venographic study and usually a dilatation because, you know, ultrasonography, like some of the things we do, is kind of hard. And when you're doing the Doppler angles, things change quite a bit. And the clinical situation trumps any ultrasound finding with regard to somebody who has TIPS. And more likely than not, it's a TIPS dysfunction in that circumstance.
0: Okay, all right, thanks very much.